Medical Blossom presents Healthcare Disruptors. Cam, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us about your journey from being immuno-oncologist to becoming entrepreneur in the field of healthcare innovation? I went into cancer immunology because I really love how the body and the immune system works. It's fascinating how it's able to interact with this uh, uh, wide range of things, keeping us healthy, but it can also make us sick. So... Um, while I was exploring this, and this took me into um, the field of oncology, I had side interests. I worked at a, uh, with a marketing company. I always liked to start businesses, working out ideas. So over time, I kind of merged these two things that figured out how to apply all the things I like about entrepreneurship, business, innovation to the practice and academic side of Medicine. And what pushed you to move away from practicing in a clinical setting to venture in healthcare entrepreneurship? Um, it was a bit gradual because I, I always was doing two things at a side and seeing what I like about clinical practice, what I like about my entrepreneurship, and they always weren't um, overlapping. Coexisting. Coexisting. I wasn't necessarily working on healthcare things, on, on what I thought is fun. We were like at hackathons and uh, doing different types of like startups or things with friends, and um, I was getting a lot of intellectual um, satisfaction um, from uh, being in oncology. The clinical practice was really more human for me. Um, I liked helping patients and spending time. I always found the clinic, clinical setting um, a bit challenging and restricted. It's inherently bureau, bureaucratic or it's an institution that you're working in. Right. And with that, there's a lot of gaps that come in how you can treat patients and the, uh, available, like the sort of tools you have available to you to um, treat someone holistically. Um, let's take an oncology uh, example. When you're seeing a patient, they usually come with a cancer, you have a diagnosis, uh, there's set treatment guidelines, but you have very limited time or tools to really help them more holistically and understand, well, what are the, not only understand what the factors are that led likely to them have a cancer, and it, it changes from cancer type to cancer type, but let alone the tools to help them kind of address those while you're treating them. Because something we have to really, you know, had to keep in mind is that until recently with some of the more advanced treatments like immunotherapies or targeted therapies, we were buying people time. Mm. It's bombing the entire thing with uh, a, a drug that is toxic, hoping that either you kill all the cancer cells, which usually doesn't even happen, um, and there's a lot of evidence that you know, when you look at how uh, agriculture is applying pesticides, when you apply too much, you just create resistance, and that there's, there's ways to go about it. And th this idea that um, we could cure it was a little bit naive, and understanding what the patient can do, how to empower them, um, was really not part of um, 
practice or practical because you don't have the time or the tools necessary. So that was like one of the big motivations to build digital health tools. And how do you see these tools changing the way we're practicing medicine? When we think of allopathic medicine and how like evolved, it came from acute care and institutional practice of medicine is very academically driven. It was acute care driven, where you're finding things that could work for solving the problem really, really well, but it's symptom driven. Where it's working great is in emergency medicine, in anesthesia, in surgery. Your arm broke and was chopped off, we could sew it back together. Um, You want to burn, you could put stem cells and heal the skin. Where this model doesn't work as well as for chronic diseases, because the chronic disease isn't an, it's not something that just happened now, it's building over time, and the way we're treating it is trying to just get at the symptom, what problem is it causing, and give, it, give something to kind of alleviate the downside risk. And it, it kind of works, sure. You know, with heart meds, you're preventing heart attack. With diabetic meds, you're, the, you're preventing the complications. But at the heart of it, the way things are practiced don't address the root cause because the root cause is societal, it's personal, it's genetic. It captures how someone got to that point over a period of 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So to kind of really, if you want to empower patients, you have to help them get control of the factors they can to improve what's happening. We do it very, very, let's say, uh, it's considered secondary or not part of the job. You're like, oh, you're becoming pre-diabetic, go address your diet, eat less rice. It's as generic as that. And it's because we do not have the tools or didn't have the tools or the practice set up to to really address this. And more and more now, starting with the U.S. and translating everywhere else in the world, we're moving to kind of, let's say, uh, preventative care or, or, um, let's say, um, it's preventative care, functional medicine, or integrative medicine that's trying to um, look at the patient holistically, understand what's going on in their life in terms of diet, stressors, mental health, exercise, and... um, find the root cause of a chronic disease and help address it by um, some targeted approach. It's usually diet-driven or exercise-driven or that with combination of, of meds. And, and it's working with the patient. It's collaborative. It's more holistic. How have you integrated AI to your practice setting? We've been able to do it in a variety of different ways. When you look at AI, it's, it's a broad set of tools. And... Um, in, in, in my setting, for example, with Imagia, one of the first things that uh, were developed was a AI detector for colonoscopy that helps uh, specialists not, uh, not only detect polyps, but differentiate on what the risk of cancer is. And that was, that's been going through trials right now. And that's something that helps uh, with the screening process for colon cancer. Another tool that um, but we've built at Enjoy um, is a digital health platform that um, essentially is a, think of it as an AI companion for the time you spend in the bathroom. You, the way it works is that every time you sit down on the toilet with your phone, you interact with a um, AI that's asking you questions about your life, your diet, your symptoms, how you're feeling, and learns over time the sort of things that might be influencing um, your overall well-being. And there, it's been a really a practical element of what's, 
what I found missing in a traditional clinical setting, namely having a consistent mechanism of capturing what is going on in a person's life in a clinically validated uh, framework that uses EPROs, having a tool that can summarize it and then provide some set of like insights that as a clinician, when you see a patient, ah, now you have a good idea of what happened to them, what some likely triggers are, and how to incorporate that knowledge into the short time you have for a visit, give your treatment plan, and when you send them off, now over the next four, six, eight weeks until the next visit, you're able to capture all the things that happened, how it's influencing them, and then when they come back, you can improve, like, um, you can update something or know that it works. And that is all AI-based. And I think it's important to repeat it. AI is a tool that will empower our medical professionals, not replace them. Yes. I mean, the, the common phrase that everyone says, I think, right now is that, you know, AI won't replace doctors or people, at least not in the short term, but doctors who know how to use AI are going to replace the ones who aren't working with it. It's a tool. It's a tool. It's very narrow in application. There's a variety of them out there. Um, integrating them into healthcare and how they get integrated is a, is a whole field of what's happening. So um, really, it's a productivity tool. It's something that helps improve what could be done. It's particular because AI is not one thing. Right now, we're talking about narrow artificial intelligence. It's a set of models in domains, domain being there's things in natural language, and natural language encodes thought and how we communicate. There's a domain of computer vision, really detecting things, and that's uh, when you think of, in medicine, how it works with x-rays, but more practically, all the uh, detection in cameras, how, uh, like, um, autopilot in the car works, that's in the vision domain. You have... Um, so th there's domains in which you can apply AI. There's ways that it does something. It's really helping you make a decision. It's helping, and that's like informed. It helps cluster things and find patterns. So it's, it's really a set of tools that you apply. How you string them or chain them together in a particular application is where you gain the benefits. And that's what you put into place in your practice setting at Sano. Yeah, so 10 years ago when we opened Sano, the idea was to have a data-driven approach to functional medicine and see how we could use um, best of validated LDTs, a variety of tests that have uh, some, some level of, um, let's say, evidence behind them, on what we were trying to build a modern EMR to provide... Uh, there's this functional medicine approach, seeing a patient, understanding everything about their, their uh, health goals, problems, diet, exercise, lifestyle, in, in collaboration with physicians, having a nutritionist, a physician, a health coach, a um, physical trainer, all practice together and provide treatment plans that help um, follow what is the best clinical practice, but also address the other things that are around it and doing it in a singular setting, have um, the appropriate data to track and do this on a, let's call it, um, health, health, uh, health informatics system or, or an EHR that allows us to learn from it as well. So underlying everything, we wanted to have a good database that we can then train models or learn or discover. 
And, and that's what we tried to do. What were the challenges that you faced along the way? It's incredibly difficult to do that in a brick-and-mortar setting, especially 10 years ago, because we didn't have the tools to really track things like diet, exercise, mental health in a standardized and clinically applicable way prior to a visit. Um, we'd do some tests and we'd get a number uh, but these tests would come back in the form of a PDF with uh, across, let's say, different, different types of um, information that we're getting from. Uh, we had nutrigenomics, we had uh, metabolic panels, we had more extensive um, uh, lifestyle patterns are coming back, coming back to us. Digitizing them was impossible task because now in the EMR, really, you're not typing out 15 pages of stuff. And then when we're making a treatment recommendations, uh, the, what the clinician would provide was easy to capture in an EMR. What the nutritionist is seeing is not on the same platform. What the, the, what the health coach is providing on the gym, that's not even captured anywhere. You needed a platform for everyone to access patients' data and be able to interact with each other. Yeah, we, we needed a platform where you, can, where you can capture all the information that's happening in between the visits, what you're recommending in the visit, and then tracking the outcomes in a way that um, are, I, I use the word clinically validated, because asking you how you feel is very, very subjective. Uh, subjective thing to do. What you really want is something like a PRO, which is a set of questions that have been validated for a uh, particular problem, and then ask the same exact questions and uh, compare the scores. So that these are standardized questionnaires. Well, standardized questionnaires, um, they're very long. Again, they're still on paper. Uh, and they're not always the same for how the nutritionist asks. So you really had to come up with something that enabled you to capture this in-between visit care, summarize information, track uh, what's happening afterwards, and know that the outcomes of that are somewhat um, valid for you to make another decision on. And there were no tools for that. That's what pushed you to transition into digital health. That was like where the transition fully into entrepreneurship happened. Because um, out of the clinic, a few things that we realized out of the clinic were that really we do not have good tools to do this. It's very, very uh, laborsome uh, on all sides, patient and practitioners, to do things on paper or this variety of tools uh, that, that aren't easy to uh, bring into a singular place. It's very expensive to do it because um, it's a bunch of tests, questions, visits, follow-ups, you know, nutrition, you have to see them every two weeks, your exercise goes, so it becomes very expensive to do all of it. And um, besides the impracticality of it, out of the clinic, I also learned that, um, you know, running a business uh, has, has challenges. So there were things that I had to learn um, out of the brick-and-mortar setting that, that, uh, that led me to, uh, at that time, start taking... Um, uh, business courses and executive classes and uh, learning uh, with like strategy consultants how to how to assess like really improving the business model of what's what's happening and yeah the the conclusion was that it's a difficult business to run it's very challenging and we're lacking the tools and the opportunity that came up is that one of our patients happened to be a um, um, who's now our CTO, one of my patients, Michael, was, uh, was a developer at Microsoft with Crohn's disease. 
And he lived in Seattle. His family's from Montreal. So he'd come and here we'd had, uh, we had him in, in, in patient starting to address the sort of things that he wanted to take control of, but do it remotely. And this idea came of, okay, we, let's build the tools we need and do it with um, people that it really matters for. So this was me and Michael and some of our team starting to uh, build what now became Enjoy. Working with you, I've come to realize the power of AI when it comes to improving patient outcomes. It, it is in, in different places. So when, you look, when we look across the board, it is starting to be used in healthcare applications. Um, I think the leading places uh, where AI really has made an impact was in radiology uh, because that uh, in computer vision there's a lot of um, ability to improve how a radiologist can work by applying AI to existing systems and workflows. It's been incredibly well in helping manage insurances in the U.S. So really insur- like, uh, insurance providers use it to prioritize patients and help triage them and direct them to appropriate care. Because if, if you find the right doctor sooner, it's less of a cost on the insurance for someone having to keep searching. Um, more and more we're seeing it now uh, make its way into uh, clinical decision support with algorithms trying to help uh, score patients that have like a likely risk so that you can then, <clears throat> again, uh, get to um, treat, like it really right now is helping prioritize patients and identify likely causes a bit faster. It is it is by nature of design in healthcare slow to adopt. We're calling it health, healthcare disruptors. But uh, what, what we'll notice is that healthcare is incredibly hard to disrupt, but it's like that for design because you don't want to hear about airplane disruptors or submarine disruptors. We saw how, <laughs> how that just happened because when you're disrupting something that is a regulated um, industry where people's lives are on the line, you inherently have mechanisms to slow things down because you can't afford a 1% error rate on something that might kill a bunch of people. You, you're inherently very, very conservative. And that's where like AI has, making, has been making a lot of hype in research, and this is just generally true for healthcare. You see a lot of cool things happen in research, I was, seeing, I was working on immunotherapies in 2005, seeing what a checkpoint inhibitor can do to a patient and thinking, why is this not available now? I've, I've had family members who are dying and coming to me and saying, hey, what can I do to save my mom? And I'm like, well, immunotherapies, we're working on it now, but then it's just not available. It was way too early. It took 10 15 years before it's now first-line treatment because it had to get proven out with all the risks known. Um, the same thing about, well, what can we do with diet, lifestyle for cancer? Like, really, the evidence for knowing how to, how to address things um, is just slow to hit practice because of all the guardrails that are in. One of the coolest things is how the microbiome can influence outcome for immunotherapies because we know if you have a certain composition, it's more likely to have, uh, it, it, your immune response might be better for immunotherapies. Hmm. We're learning these things that are making it to clinical practice. Same thing is happening with AI. There's a lot of body on work and research that's been done in a single institute on a controlled data set where the tools have been applied and you're like, oh, cool, this could really work. But making sure that that is 
that tool working in research um, has a long path to making it to a patient because not only do you have to then prove the technology under a regulatory setting and show its, show its safety, you have to think of, well, if you built it in the U.S. at Stanford, is it going to work in Chapukami or some other place because it is just as applicable? And if not, how do you ensure that the tool could work in multiple settings? Now that you have the AI, how do you deploy it? AI is a technology that lives on the web or in a setting. Most healthcare institutes are barely connected to the internet behind firewalls working on ancient systems that are still 15, 20 years old. Um, having an AI on the internet really is not that helpful because the data from your patient cannot be simply uploaded and then brought back down. Of course not. Your, your private health information safety risk, right? Your PHI cannot be just sent up to the web available to everyone for an AI to do something with it. We need to protect patients' confidentiality, but there's also a lot more to consider when developing AI for healthcare. A lot. You have to ensure that your AI was trained and validated on a broad enough data set where it can generalize and capture all potential biases, be aware of those biases, and then know how to account for them. That is another big one that you have to that you have to account for. You have to understand drift, meaning that um, if the model is performing and starting to drift, underperform, why? How to stop it? You have to have a human, uh, you still have to have uh, a human interpreter, meaning that if it's making a call as, as a clinician or specialist, I have to have enough knowledge about how the model was trained and how it's coming to a conclusion so that I can sanity check it and say, hey, maybe it's saying something wrong. Because if it's telling me something wrong, I might kill someone. So, the, the, so there's a lot of safeguards that have to come into place. And this is both from how it's been trained, validated, um, put into a clinical workflow or tool. And that falls under regulatory guidance from things like the FDA, GDPR, uh, CE marking. And taking all of those into consideration, if it happens, then um, it'll reach the patients. Now, the, the one aspect to, to, one of the things that we can think of, how, how it can get to patients faster, is that not everything has to be medical or medical claim. AI can provide a lot of benefit in healthcare adjacent. Capturing your diet data doesn't necessarily need to be a regulated AI product. Um, if it's trying to, to tell you, uh, if it's giving you a treatment recommendation, yes. If it's saying, well, beans seem to make you bloated, go see your doctor, that falls under a less regulated and lower risk category of things. So the way we're seeing things rolled out is that um, a, lot of a, a lot of tools are being made available in, in healthcare adjacent. Like if you think of the Aura or your Whoop or a what your Apple Watch does, there's a line between, hey, these are things that you should know about, and there's a lot of AI behind it. Now it's trying to uh, help you discover like AFib or heart, heart issues with the Apple Watch. That is a regulated claim that had to go through a, a process before even uh, being able to provide that. When they provided it, there's been a lot of false positive and errors because of the way it's been trained. It can't miss something. Now, if you're using this as someone to make sure that you're not having a heart attack, um, the specificity, how accurately it knows that you have a heart attack, is less important than sensitivity, making sure it's not missing one. Because as Apple, you don't want to miss a single one. You're going to get sued. But you're sending a whole bunch of people 
to to the ER or the doctor when nothing's happening. And that's that's the line where things start moving into well, when is it available to patients in one setting? It, it, there's these considerations of how it's deployed, how it's used, when it provides a benefit. Why is healthcare so hard to disrupt? We're trying to disrupt, but it disruption comes at a slower pace within a certain framework. Functional medicine is disruptive to medicine, right? And being able to provide tests to, you were, I think you're going to get to this, allowing te- patients to get their own test results, Google, they're disruptive. It's just what it's causing is like, okay, now you get an informed patient in a certain setting what, where the doctor's not prepared for it, and that requires a doctor to change the way they're practicing. Um, EHRs, are great, things should be electronically captured, but they were disruptive because now you're no longer writing while writing on pen and paper while talking to someone. You have to either type or then talk to your patient and then spend extra time typing. Oh, really cool. AI can now listen in and transcribe everything for you. And with NLP and ER, it even understands the concepts and where you are in a patient interview. Uh, Microsoft and a bunch of other companies are rolling this out. There is a wave of innovation in healthcare right now. How do you envision AI shaping the industry in the near future? Saving costs and quality assurance systems, quality management is somewhere where you can easily deploy AI and it doesn't actually carry a healthcare risk uh, or a patient risk. So you, you see a lot of benefit coming up and that, that, that unlocks resources uh, for the hospital where they can perform better. Uh, these things then come into like catching errors that's great because if you're reducing operative errors or things that happen because you have AI that's able to monitor systems, that's a great way where innovation is happening. On the healthcare adjacent, I love what's happening with uh, digital health tools because it's providing more and more um, comprehensive platforms for patients to use where they're getting a lot of value up front and and they're starting to integrate with healthcare. Um, A lot of these... um, digital health companies that started on the consumer side are now working with uh, clinicians, doctors, hospitals to bring value into that ecosystem and provide something that uh, would be a pain point for a physician. So it's, it's really shaping it in, in a variety of predictable and unpredictable ways, um, most of which are good because um, generally we know that the cost of healthcare is way too high. People tend to be overworked and strained. So the more productivity and efficiency we can bring in by leveraging these tools, the more capacity the humans have to actually provide care or, or um, be more engaged in the practice. Right. Things are definitely shifting and doctors have to adapt to the autonomy and level of information that patients come with. The challenge that you mentioned is really interpretation and context. The reason you have doctors is because they've been trained to think across systems and seen a breadth of examples with edge cases over time in a way where they can kind of help interpret and integrate knowledge from a variety of sources, meaning you, the symptoms, the physical exam, the tests that they have, um, having looked at a literature to help guide you. Now, it's also very challenging because, uh, like I said, doctors have become um, incredibly slammed. They have less time and incentive to really be that uh, comprehensive and uh, com- like, uh, 
yeah, to, to really take the time to understand and help interpret. So as, as patients are becoming more autonomous and getting control of their disease and access to the data, um, physicians are gaining uh, more time and uh, how to say it, on, on the physician side with some of the tools, you're offloading busy work so that they can really listen and um, understand what is happening to a patient. If you come with a summary of information that's pertinent in a way that um, I can understand, and then I have the time now to really listen to you and, and kind of ask the critical questions, the patient-physician relationship improves. Really, an individual could be the best knowledgeable person about their health. And I know a lot of patients who come, and they know a lot more than the physician because they've had the time to research and look and ask questions for three weeks before you come to your doctor. Now, summarizing all of that and then expecting that the physician has all of that context in mind at like a, a snap of a finger is, is, is where there's friction, right? Because I would have had the time to look at some of that, digest the information, and have an interaction with you. So that's where the balance comes in. So I think it's great for, uh, for patients to have control of their data. It actually should be them that uh, have all of this together. What needs to happen is that these interpretations and summaries have to be provided to the physician in a digestible manner, because I cannot spend 45 minutes listening to all the random things being put together. I, there's a way to understand the context of what's coming and then use that to give you guidance. And hopefully when I'm giving you guidance, uh, it can actually be part of all the tools you're using to track. And it, it can really improve things. Right now it's still a friction point because we're just not there yet in, in, in all the things that are necessary to make it seamless. In order to get the best patient's outcome, we need to see AI walking hand-in-hand hand with our doctors. It has to go hand-in-hand because hand, they know their patients, they know their care setting, they know the environment in which it works, how it works. So if you do not have that expertise accessible to you, um, you are making decisions that uh, might be proven wrong. And it's very costly because you would put a lot of time and money into building something that just suddenly won't work or won't get adopted. There's numerous examples of tools that people build and a doctor will just not use it because you didn't think of... It's a matter of if you're adding three extra clicks to someone's workflow, it's not going to happen. I agree. As we try to get the best patient's outcomes, we need to make sure we minimize the impact it has on the doctor's daily workflow. Because you can have a great outcome for a patient, but if it's going to take an extra 15 minutes, that it's not... Because what you've built is probably great for a patient population or a particular type of patient. So unless it's a hyper-specialized doctor that's doing that one thing and one thing only, um, which is very, very rare, it won't get adopted. That's why the first thing we built with Imagine was, was for colonoscopy. It's great. It's great for the doctor. It helps the patient, saves cost, and it's zero extra effort on the physician. And those are working because they're not changing a thing that they're doing. Um, where we saw things failing very often were cloud-based radiology applications where it could detect something with AI really well, but you'd have to upload shit to the cloud and then go onto a cloud account and come back down. Well, the time it takes for them to actually do it themselves is less than <clears throat> whatever value was gained from having to open up a second 
um, window in an interface to go and train the AI and then use that knowledge and then bring it back into their own system. So any efficiency or benefit gain is, would be lost compared to the time of them just doing it themselves. And based on your experience, what advice would you give anyone building a healthcare startup? Have equal parts physicians and um, technical people. Build a team that's inclusive on both the engineering, technical, and healthcare side. Where I've seen a lot of issues in startups and hospitals is that they're very lopsided to one set of expertise. Hospitals, 60,000 people, uh, like 60,000 at large ones, but let's say very large organizations with thousands of doctors and nurses and this have an IT team of six, okay? That's why hospitals can't innovate. They can barely function. And I've been in healthcare startups that are trying to change and disrupt healthcare and apply AI to all these cool things, and they don't have a single doctor or healthcare expert in there. So no, understanding, hey, what's the problem you're solving? How to go after it? Will this even work? Um, is based on pure assumptions that often get uh, proven wrong the moment you actually have to deal with a healthcare system or even the regulatory framework, or any of the things I mentioned that are required to be able to uh, bring something to a patient and value. So unless you really have a great understanding of, um, you need domain knowledge, essentially. So that's the one advice I can give. Have domain knowledge in healthcare, uh, as well as uh, technical capabilities, because otherwise you're going to be facing a lot of challenges. Cam, thank you so much for being our incredible first guest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.